really switching gears here. Had nothing to do with what I just said, but we're going to look at what this text... I've been, I've been going through this book uh, for a number of weeks now, and this is where we have landed, verses 9 and 10. We'll start with verse 7. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh shall from his flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now these are the two verses we're looking at, not verse 9. And let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Would you join me in prayer? Father, as we look into this portion of your word today, some of us are discouraged. We as a church are facing some very significant challenges. and We as individuals, Lord, as Christians, we face challenges in our lives in various ways. We pray that this word that we have in this portion of Scripture will serve as a means of your Holy Spirit, using it to encourage and to provide to us the kind of, of uh, incentive and, and encouragement, Lord, that we need, that we might get our eyes upon Christ today and find hope in Him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the Bible really boils everything down and helps us see that there are two basic approaches to God. There is the approach to God that involves what we would call moralistic works. That is, if we're on this particular path and trying to find our way to God, as many religions are in this world, each person then is burdened with this massive, tremendous responsibility, an endless list of works that we must correctly perform or do or somehow pursue. And in doing those things, we do that because of the assumption that that is the way in which we must gain God's approval is by following all of God's standards, and therefore we must improve ourselves in order to approach God and have a relationship with God and know God. There is a contrary and extremely opposite view of the Bible that boils down and says the other view, the opposite approach, is the gospel of grace that extends to those who embrace it and who come to faith in Christ this freedom from this heavy burden of having all these endless performing of good deeds to somehow deal with our guilt, to deal with our shame before God, and to somehow have a right relationship with God. The, the Scriptures say, no, there's another way. It is the way of grace in the Gospel. And there we find freedom. And that freedom is found only through the person of Jesus Christ who perfectly kept the law of God. Only Jesus followed all of God's standards, every single one of them. And Jesus then, as a perfect law keeper, made and offered and provided a, an adequate, God-satisfying payment when he died on the cross as a substitute for sinners. Sinners like you and me, people who fail to do what God demands and requires of us, and who neglect to do what God does tell us to do, we choose not to do it. And we often do and do what God forbids. The gospel of grace declares that repentant sinners, like you and me, can gain acceptance before God 
not on the basis of improving ourselves, but simply through faith, simply trusting, receiving this new status in Jesus Christ, a status that says we are adopted by God, we are made His children, we are fully forgiven, and this is given to us as an unearned free gift. That is the good news that the Bible declares about Jesus Christ. It is by faith alone in Jesus and His life, His death, and His resurrection. Those are the things that save us. Now I give you all that as a backdrop because you need to hear what I'm going to say next, and that is this. Those who have embraced Christ by faith and have indeed the saving faith uh, is that which they have already expressed for Christ. That saving faith, the Bible says, is never alone. By that I mean that true saving faith always involves an inner work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, and the Spirit of God convicts a person, like you and me, of our great sin and convinces us that God nonetheless still loves us, and God has provided to us His Son, Jesus Christ, as Savior and Lord. And the Holy Spirit then invariably begins to bring forth fruit in the lives of people that he has now begun to work in, and that fruit will evidence a new heart. And true saving faith will always bear the outward fruit of good works. So it starts first with the Holy Spirit who works in our hearts, then we come to faith in Christ, and if that faith is true and genuine, the Spirit of God has changed our hearts, we're going to see the evidence of, the, of good fruit, of good works being evident in our lives. That's what the Bible says. If you turn your page, just a page or two, page 1390 in your pew Bible, we read these words. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, not by works, doing good things, but by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. For we are His, that is God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? In order to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you see the order? First we believe, and by faith, we receive this gift on the basis of grace, of, new, of eternal life, and then as a result of that working in us, we become then God is working inside us, and He begins to bring out from us the evidence of good works. And so true saving faith always bears the outward fruit of good works. And the love of God that we have embraced as we come to Christ, because God has done this for us on the basis of His love for us, even though we've broken His laws and turned against Him, it is that love that now is made fully effective in our hearts. And now the motive as we live for God, having received this wonderful gift from Him through grace, is now translated in our living out our lives in love, response to God and His love. And through the gospel, we have always, therefore, we have found what we've always longed for, and that is freedom. Freedom in our heart and a new desire now to serve God and to do good to other people. Not because we have to, but because we now can and we want to in order to honor God, in order to show the world what God is like. And we do it in this particular passage, chapter Galatians, verse 6. 
The emphasis here is he's not saying in this passage that we are referring to what we are required to do to be made right with God. That's not what this passage is talking about. He's talking about the fruit of our salvation. He's talking about our response to that which God has done in our hearts as receiving His grace in the gospel. And so therefore, it's a word that comes to us, having already embraced this faith, this trust in Christ. And he speaks now of doing good works. Why does he talk about that? Why talk about this in this passage? Well, the fact is that when disciples of Jesus, who have received the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, they oftentimes are desiring to do good works. It's true. And we begin to see things in our lives that clearly show a change that God works in our hearts. But after a while, after we've gotten involved, as he says in verse 2 of the same chapter, Galatians 6, we'll start bearing another person's burdens. We get involved in somebody who's heavily weighed down. We realize that they need help, and so we come alongside them. We try to help shore up that for a period of time and get them to where they can accomplish what God calls them to do. And You get involved with other people's lives, and there are times where you become burdened yourself. That when we are involved in doing good deeds, sometimes we do become disheartened. We become weary in doing good. Sometimes it can become a huge hassle in getting involved with other people's problems and lives, can't it? Years ago, I read a book by, about Diedrich Bonhoeffer. I commend it to you. It's quite good. Martaxis, I believe, is the author. And he, he sort of uh, goes through Diedrich Bonhoeffer's life. He was a very brilliant man. He was a, a, a professor. He was a pastor of a church. He was a, a, a statesman and a strong Christian in the 1930s in Germany. And he resisted the movement that was underway at that time among the churches of Germany to embrace Nazi thinking. And Bonhoeffer preached against it. Bonhoeffer lectured against it. He wrote numerous papers on this concern about how that does not agree and is not in harmony with what the Scripture teaches and often the views there. He was alone, one of the few lone voices in the wilderness, crying out, saying, this is not right. There was a time that Bonhoeffer was traveling about. This is before the war fully broke out. and He uh, made his way to the United States, and he had a very comfortable position offered to him. He could have stayed here, but he said, no, I need to go back to Germany, knowing that it was headed in a direction which he knew his life was going to be in danger. But he was committed to doing good for his people because he was burdened about what was happening there spiritually among so many who were deceived. And so he went and returned to his native home there in Germany. Uh, many of you may know he became a part of a, a, a conspiracy, in a sense, to, um, to make sure that Hitler could no longer have power. And when that did not successfully work, uh, eventually the fingerprints of, in a sense, figuratively speaking, Bonhoeffer and others who were involved in that scheme uh, they were captured, Bonhoeffer was arrested, and eventually he was killed by execution. And so I go back and ask the question, is it surprising then that in this passage of Scripture, people who do good and who are followers of Jesus Christ, is it not possible and is it not surprising that we can say with this passage of Scripture, we understand we need some help because why? There is weariness oftentimes in well-doing. 
Do you feel that in your life? There can be weariness at times in well-doing. There are times when we can lose heart. Maybe you've had that time and you think to yourself, what is the use of all this I keep doing that's trying to invest and trying to sow in ways that are good in other people's lives and lives of my community, lives of other people I, uh, uh, in my family? I'm worn out doing good. Have you ever felt that? I'm worn out. I think every mother feels that way, doesn't she? Every father at some point. I'm worn out trying to help this kid. Remember my wife used to nurse our children and after going through all that challenging hassle in the hot summertime, you know, have this hot baby, and, and, and no sooner have you fed this child, taken all that time, erps it up all over you. Nasty. I mean, absolutely disgusting. You ever felt you say, oh, I'm so tired of doing good. I think it's something we need to think about here because as we follow Jesus Christ, and the text of Scripture we're reading here goes back to chapter 25, as we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we're going to find ourselves encountering problems, demands, difficulties that are in our path as we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And those are going to be quite challenging to deal with at some point if I am committed to doing good and following Christ out of my response of love to Him. And we're going to find ourselves thinking about my unsaved neighbor, perhaps, that lives across the street, and we think about his life, and, well, man, his life seems to be going much easier than mine because he just does his own thing. Comes in, closes the door, doesn't get involved in anybody's lives, doesn't give a dime to anybody, lives for himself, feels rather comfortable, and his life seems to be less complex and difficult than mine. If we're not careful, we become like the psalmist in Psalm 73 which I'll commend you to your reading at another time. In that psalm, the the psalmist admits he's grown weary of heart, and he says, in vain. He gets to the point where he finally concludes, in vain, he says, I have kept my heart pure. He says, for for nothing. Look at these people. They live like crazy, wild, out-of-control people who don't follow any moral constraints, and their lives seem to go well. He says, I'm trying to do what's right. Look at my life. And he says, for I have been stricken all day long. He's in a bad place. He's discouraged. He's weary in heart. He's growing faint. Perhaps you are also in a situation where perhaps your heart has grown faint because in your attempts to follow Christ, in your attempts to do good and speak of Christ to those you love and care about in polite and appropriate ways, has been met with a response on the part of people who do not know Christ, whether your relatives, your co-workers, is they make fun of you. They belittle you. They mock you in your faith and service to Christ. And so by doing the right thing for Christ, at times it can and it will, I would think, at some point, it's very likely that you're going to find yourself discouraged, maybe even demoralized. And so we come and we ask ourselves, what can we do at that moment? Where do we turn? How can we get a word of encouragement that will help those of us who have believed on Christ and yet we're struggling with spiritual weariness? My friend, this passage of Scripture has spoken to my heart in powerful ways even this week. I needed to hear this text of Scripture. I needed to study it. I'm thankful that this was part of where we were and it all came together this way. Here we find in these two wonderful verses, verses 9 and 10, they are jam-packed with spiritual help and encouragement 
because he goes back to the same law he's looked at two different times. We've seen this now. And now in verses 9 and 10, the law of sowing and reaping. Law of sowing and reaping. And I want to consider two valuable insights now into this particular law that God has established that will motivate us to keep on doing good deeds as an evidence of the fruit of the gospel having worked in our hearts and lives. So our first main point here in your notes, if you're following along, is that we want to notice the text says that the sowing and reaping law we read about in verses 9 and 10 provides to us incentives for persevering in gospel-motivated good works. Here we find some incentives. Now, every disheartened believer, if you've come here today and your heart is heavy and you're feeling like you're uh, lost in your, in your desire to, to continue to pursue those good things you've been trying to do, may I encourage you to listen carefully here? If you find that you have not lost heart and you say, well, I've come with a great joyous attitude in my heart, may I suggest to you, if you're committed to following the Holy Spirit, it's very likely at some point in your life you better prepare yourself for those times by really knowing and understanding and claiming these verses. Following Jesus does not <clears throat> result in instant gratification. Doing good for Christ often involves long periods of waiting for the harvest to come in of blessing and breakthroughs. There's a the long period of waiting. And Paul directs our attention here in this text of Scripture to this powerful incentive of sowing good deeds of devotion to Christ. Look what he says there in verse 9. In due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. <clears throat> now, years ago, before they had those giant, amazing, green John Deere tractors, a farmer who faced the prospect of somehow trying to grow uh, crops, he would have to try to break up the soil with a plow, and that plow was being pulled by oxen. I can hear Sid Williams describing to me, Sid is one of our members here, he's in his 90s, he, said he, could, he tells us that near this, across the street of here, Middle Country Road, where are we? Uh, i got to get my bearings, okay, Middle Country Road over here. Uh, he used to pull, had a horse that would pull a plow, and he would uh, break up the soil so that the seeds could be planted in there. It is hard, hard work. It is wearisome work. It's exhausting work. And the farmer who longs for this good harvest must push away from him the temptation that he feels to just stop doing all this work. I want to get something for it. But what a farmer does is he says, no, I am committed to doing the labors of the long and difficult work I'm called to do. And then the farmer must sit back and he then says, I'm waiting for God to do what only God could do. And I've got to wait all through the growing season to see if God indeed will bring the harvest. That's why I read the verses in James chapter 5. He talks about farmers. He says this, Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil. It's not hard to wait. It's difficult to wait. You put all this work in, you want to get it now. You want to get it back. He is patient about it until he gets the early and late rains. And he says, you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts. Coming of the Lord is near. And so in your notes, you'll notice farmers are patient, forward-looking workers. Farmers are 
patient, forward-looking worker. They don't just work for the here and now and say, okay, it's all going to happen tomorrow. That's not what it works in farming and sowing. They invest heavily on the front end of the growing season, and then they wait a long time for the harvest. Now, some of us struggle and we lose heart because we have adopted not a farmer's mindset, we've adopted a child's mindset. And I'm one of these. And that leads us to a quote that's in your your notes there, and that's a, that there's an error in the quote, so I'm going to correct it for you here. The, 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 word, the second word should mean, should read Christians, not children. Christians. Many Christians are like children. They would sow and reap the same day, John Brown wrote. It. Many Christians are like children. They would sow and reap the same day. Can you identify with that? You know, if you get a little child helping you and you plant a couple seeds in the garden with your little grandchild or your small child, it, the child waters it and thinks, well, tomorrow I'm going to go out and look at it. It's going to be already grown. No, it doesn't work that way. But we assume, like a child sometimes, that we will enjoy the harvest of our sowing much sooner than God's timetable. Because we get weary when we have to wait. And so why is it that many of us have become discouraged like an impatient child rather than being a patient, hardworking farmer? I believe it goes back to that which motivated that farmer and kept that farmer sowing, even though he doesn't see the immediate results to it. It's because that farmer did not give up. Why? Because he has faith. Faith in God. And so farmers trust God to bring about the proper weather conditions. They trust God to bring about the biological processes within that seed, within those plants, and to bring forth this big harvest after a time of waiting during growing season. It's the the element of faith that is absolutely critical as part of this understanding of what keeps us going. And that's really illustrated clearly in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. It's called the hallmark hall of fame in a sense of people who have trusted God and has a long list of people who have sowed the seeds of obedience doing good but they also had to endure many hardships they had to go through a long waiting period waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises so for example page 1430 in your pew bible Hebrews 11 24 he gives the example of, of Moses by faith Moses when he had grown up refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter. That is, he was adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh in in Egypt. He lived a very luxurious life in the palace there. He choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. What's he saying? He's saying he rejected the lifestyle of all of the plush benefits of staying as loyal to the Pharaoh, but he identified himself with the Jewish people, the children of Israel, who were suffering under the, the, uh, the enslavement of the, uh, the Egyptians, and therefore he endured a lot of difficulties because he's looking for the rewards of what God promised those people. So they summarize there all the different examples of people of faith. It tells us what faith is, Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For God, sorry, for the person who comes to God must believe that he is 
and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. God is a rewarder. God is a person who gives bountiful harvest to those who sow. And so letter C in our outline is then trusting God and his promise. We are to trust God and his promises. That will help us immensely when we feel discouraged. God has promised in due time we will reap. In due time we will reap. Living by faith in God's promises will help to sustain an ongoing sowing of good deeds in the here and now. Like a farmer, Christians, in our service, it will require us to have a long-term view of what we're doing. It could be that many of us have lost heart because we stopped sowing good deeds for Christ because we've lost sight of the timetable of God. God's time, harvest time comes much later than we would oftentimes prefer. And so gospel blessings often can and do come after a long season of sowing truth in our own hearts, truth in the hearts of our family, truth in the, in the, uh, in the lives of people that we know around us. So we ask the question, what would happen then if we adopted a long view of raising children, if you will, what would happen if we took, if doing good for our family, following God's ways, applying those to our family life now, and we had a long-term view of it? Instead of, sometimes we think, well, I just want to adopt a quick technique to help me endure the terrible twos of my children's life. Some little way of, of offering bribery to them, of somehow saying, if you do this, then won't, you know, rather than learning to teach them to submit to our authority, ter- learning them to teach to submit to God's authority, teaching them God's ways, addressing the issues of their hearts, not just trying to manipulate them. And looking at their teenage years is not something we just endure and hope and pray and hang on and say, let's see if we can just get them through these years. No, we invest in those years. We prepare them for those years. We speak into their lives. We try to speak of our own, desire, of our own failings, of our own need to follow Christ and talk about the gospel so that what we have is a long-term view of not just getting through the first difficult years of of life but we want a godly heritage i don't want just a a child who can get through five years or ten years or 15 years of life i want godly children who will be raised up to be godly adults who themselves will raise godly children and have a godly heritage that follows me after i'm long gone from this world for the glory of christ that's a long-term view. And I've seen that happen. It's a beautiful thing when you see it. Our son Jonathan, uh, recently married, and uh, I'm not just trying to single him out, but I should have just said one of our kids. Anyway, one, our son Jonathan married into a wonderful family, as did our other kids. But the neat thing that's interesting about the family he married into with his wife's family is that her mother has like six or seven uh, siblings, there's lots of cousins, lots of aunts and uncles, and they all get together. And here are this godly uh, grandparents who have prayed and invested heavily into their children, and they're seeing the fruit of that. And now their ch- grandchildren are following Christ, and they get together and they speak in each other's lives and celebrate the significant moments. It's a beautiful thing that God has seen in, in, in the godly heritage that's come down from these grandparents, godly people. We read about that, for example, in Psalm 78. Where God commands the children of Israel to teach the Scriptures to their children, and He says this, that the generation to come 
might know. Even the children yet to be born. So there's a long-range view of sowing that says it's not just about the here and now. I'm looking down a generation or two. Children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. Psalm 78, verses 5 to 7. So I'll raise this question. What would it look like, and what would happen, if we took a long-term view of our sowing years in this world, of doing good in society? What kind of reaping do you think you might see if you continue to offer the sowing of your life and your godly example in our society, in our families, in our business places, even in our church? What would our church look like 50 years from now, 100 years from now? These are the kind of things that we are hoping and praying as we continue sowing to see those fruit that God will bring, the harvest. Notice our text here again in verse 9. God promises those who keep sowing, who keep doing good, a joyful time of reaping in due time. That's a key phrase, in due time. doesn't say right now, does it? For some of us, the reaping will be enjoyed in this life. If that's the case, praise God. But let's say sometimes you do good and your unsaved neighbor, you've been trying to work with this fellow, you've been built a relationship with him, you've tried to uh, understand where he's coming from, you've had some long conversations with him, you've had to endure some of his salty language at times, some of the things he does that have been annoying to you perhaps, as I'm sure you've done some things to annoy him. But you've responded by God's grace in ways that have been gracious, and you've tried to be patient with him, and you've tried to offer words of counsel, and you've prayed for him. And some of us may see the seeds of our witnessing come to fruition, and we'll see this person come to faith. That's a wonderful thing. What a joyous situation, a person coming to faith in Christ. For others of us, the reaping will not be enjoyed until we enter the courts of heaven, until we receive that final reward in heaven, until God finally writes the last chapter of what he's doing in this world. And I'm convinced that it's this latter kind of thinking is what kept the Apostle Paul, the missionary, it kept him going in what he did all the years he was seeking to plant churches. Paul didn't have an easy time of sowing seeds, as he invested in these churches as a missionary. But he did not lose heart. Why? Well, it wasn't because he had an easy go of it. He did see some good fruit come, yes, but he also did so. He said, and I'm quoting what he wrote here in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, I'm afflicted every day. He says, I'm perplexed. I'm persecuted. I've been struck down. I've even been delivered over to death again and again for Jesus' sake. Even all those things happened, he didn't lose heart, he says. Why? It's because of his forward-looking anticipation of reaping that would come in due time. And as he neared his death, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes this. He's almost ready to step over the line, leaving this world. He knows he's going to die very soon. He says this, I have fought the fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future... Did you catch that? In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. He's still got the future anticipating, knowing that that's really where the full reward will come. 
And I would suggest to many of us one of the good things that we could be doing, and that is involved in prayer. That prayer becomes a, an investment of sowing, sowing and in, in trusting God and His promises and claiming what God has said in His Word and praying over our people and concerns and problems and things that we face in life. And for many of us, if you read Luke 18, you realize it's easy to lose heart and stop asking. Because it feel like, well, where's God? He, he's not doing anything I've been asking about. And the fact is what? We need to, in due time, in due time, God will bring about the harvest that He believes is best and what's good. So let me urge you then, for those of us here this morning, take hold of this promise in Galatians 6, 9. And let me give you a word of counsel like my father-in-law, who recently just passed. He used to say to us, and this is one of his famous sayings, keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. He was a great encourager. And so I say to those of us who are doing good for Christ and His kingdom, keep doing what you're doing. Every sacrifice will be rewarded, and a harvest will come at the proper time, God's time, if we do not lose heart. Well, that leads us to our second point here. Please bear with me. I'm not going to be as long on this point as I was on the first one. So, the second point of this text, looking at verse 10, involves the fact that we notice that the law of sowing and reaping provides instruction for persevering in gospel-motivated good deeds. For example, it answers three questions for us. First question, to whom are we to do good? Who are the people that we are to seek to serve and help? And in what practical ways are we to express our gratitude to Christ for loving us and giving himself for us on the cross? And the answer he says there in Galatians 6, verse 10, he says, let us do good to all men. All men. All people. This is the path that the Holy Spirit directs his children to do. We're not talking about sitting on a committee and discussing doing good talking about all the good that needs to be done, talking about the fact that, you know, someday we ought to do some good and just deliberating about it. But he says, no, do good to all people. That includes unbelievers and believers, people who follow Jesus and people who don't. We have a lots of opportunity to now show forth the greatness of our God by doing good to people who love God or don't love God. And so I raise the question in my mind, how would our neighborhoods be changed for the better if we did good to the people who are around us, the people who are in our vicinity? How would our unsaved relatives be impacted if we did acts of kindness and offered our help to them in doing good to them, even though they sometimes can have a really lousy attitude toward us? How would the poor and the fatherless be helped if we took the time to do good to them for the sake of Christ? I am so thankful that we as a church, we've sought to try to live this out, this principle of doing good in our community by do, offering two camps in which we have not asked for a single dime for anything that we've offered here. We've tried to serve and we've tried to help and we haven't said this is only for people who can afford it. No, we have tried to say we want to do good to you and your children, to your families, and to the, 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 uh, the, the people who live in our community here. So we offer a soccer camp, an adventure camp, for free. And it's open to anyone. 
It's open to believers and unbelievers. And so this is an example of the kinds of things that we can do collectively. We also can do this individually as God would have us and lead us. So here's a good question. What, would, what, good would, what might God do if you were to do good to your fellow employees at work? You're the one that cleans up all the messy plates and the coffee pot and all that stuff that just people just throw stuff in there and it just sits and nobody ever does anything about it. What happens if you serve them and offer to do good where you see there's a need? What happens if you are the boss and you have people around you and you say, well, what good can I do for the people who work for me? That I might be a, 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 a person who is a boss. I actually can in, enable them to have a better work situation, a better environment, a better encouragement in their work situation. What happens if we help the helpless, empowering the poor, offering to get involved in Habitat for Humanity or something like that? All kinds of things. We can sponsor an international child. There are many, many different ways as we pray about it and think about it. Lord, what would you have me do? It's wide open. So don't just leave it out there as nebulous, but let's begin to ask ourselves, what can I do to the people that I can do something for around us? So it's very broad, but then he says, focus a prioritization. That's the next question. In what way are we to prioritize our doing good? In what way? Well, the needs of our world are immense, obviously. But he goes on to say that our doing good must be prioritized. That is, there are certain things that are first importance, and then we can do other things of good. And so he suggests to us that the priority of doing good to the members of the spiritual family that we're part of has to be at the top of the list. Why? Because the world is not going to show concern for the fellow members of our family in the ways that the family of God is called to respond to those needs and committed to those needs, and therefore we must never neglect them and abandon them. We are to care for each other as brothers and sisters. 1 Corinthians 12 says, If one member of the body of Christ suffers, all the members of the family suffer with it. And so we cannot expect the world to take care of our spiritual family uh, as if it's their responsibility. We're called to do that as the first priority. And as the members of this church follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and we will do good to each other, that good could involve praying for each other. It could involve encouraging each other, helping with child care, visiting people who are widows and shut-ins. There is an endless list of ways we can do that. Forgiving each other, all those, all those things are involved in that. That has to be at the higher end of our priority. And so as a church, we're reminded again, what a wonderful privilege and opportunity God gives us to express our love for him in the context of this church family. And then the last question, and with this we'll summarize, when are we to do this good? When? Verse 10. Well, when you think about it, we get so overwhelmed by the amount that's needed we get overwhelmed as we read these verses and think, oh, there's so much to be done. I don't know how in the world I'll ever get anything done as long as this list is. How can I possibly do good to everyone? And the answer is, as you have opportunity. While you have opportunity, our doing good is limited. There's no way we can do it all. So don't feel like you have to. Relax. Take a deep breath. You don't have to become exhausted in heart and mind to think, oh, I'll never do all the good that needs to be done. Mothers, fathers, all of us 
There's no way we can do all the good that needs to be done in the world, but God gives us each a window of opportunity. Now that window looks different for all of us. Some of us have 90 plus years of life in this world in order to do good to so many people. Well, wonderful, keep doing it. Some of us are going to have a much smaller window of opportunity. Some of us have physical limitations. We cannot do, but only so much in our abilities. The window is quite small. Some of us are outgoing people. Some of us are very quiet, bashful, shy people. The window that God gives us doesn't always have to be the same, as you have opportunity. But the point is, no matter what, how much time you have, no matter how many gifts and, and the uh, uh, opportunities and the settings in which God allows you to do good, the question is, will you do the good that you can do as God gives you opportunity? And so I would encourage you this week is to say, Lord, thank you for this encouraging word. Thank you for reminding me I don't have to do everything. You've done for me what I couldn't do for myself. And now that you've helped me understand what you want to see done through my life and to other people's lives, let me be thinking, Lord. Let me be praying. What's the long-term view of how you can use me? In my family, in my neighbors, my coworkers, in society, and in our world. Investing yourself by doing good is what it means to follow Jesus as we live out our faith in the one who did good, all good, we will not do so perfectly like he did, but we do so out of gratitude and love for him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to not get caught up in the false gospel that says that we have to do a lot of good before God will love us, accept us, <clears throat> and forgive us. Father, we, we, we want to be very clear and to acknowledge that we want none of that, Father. But I pray, Lord, that you would take this clear word of encouragement that for those who are in Christ Jesus, who have received him by faith, Lord, we thank you that you've invited us, <clears throat> you've encouraged us with this wonderful promise about what you're doing and how you work things to continue to sow ourselves in the lives of others by good deeds. Lord, help us not to talk about good deeds only. Help us, Lord, to think of practically serving you in ways that are very helpful and, and uh, tangible expressions of our faith and love for you and for other people. And Father, I pray for those who are here today, perhaps they've never really acknowledged their need for a Savior. They've never really had a heart that has a real love for other people to this extent. I pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes of their hearts, that they would understand what Christ has done for them in order to give them that free gift. Lord, may they receive that gift by faith, trusting Christ and all he's done. Even this day, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.